Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org. And don't forget to subscribe. Cool. Um, okay, Greg's gone. Um, am, I, am I allowed to start? Can somebody give me permission? Is it okay? I can preach now. Okay, okay, great. Hi, everyone. Awesome. So we're in week three. Oh, that's loud. Um, we're in week three of our um, Straight to the Heart series where we're talking about um, guarding the wellsprings of life, right? Our heart. And um, I am doing week three. Um, permission to. That's the wrong slide. Uh, those are not my slides, sorry team. Okay, they're just going to sort that out in the back. But we're on week three, and we're talking about permission to heal. So week one, we spoke about God is an emotional God, and last week, we spoke about permission to, f- to feel, and this week, we're talking about permission to heal. There we go. So this isn't about somebody giving you permission to heal. In the same way that I didn't actually need permission to start preaching, Um, I've prepared to preach. I knew for weeks that I was going to preach. They gave me the fancy microphone. I knew. And it says, the idea of me asking, can I start, is as ridiculous as you feeling that you need to ask other people for permission to start healing. This is about giving yourself permission to heal. Because the reality is, healing is messy work. Sometimes we feel like if we can just have that epiphany or that revelation that you know, that tells us what's wrong with us, why we're such a mess, why our lives are a mess, why we behave the way we do. If we have that revelation, everything will magically just be okay and everything will fall into place. But that's like 1% of the work. The other 99 is actually doing the healing because I have to undo ways of thinking and ways of being and I have to replace all of that with the truth of what God says about who I am what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to do it, and where I'm supposed to be. So we're talking really about owning your heart. Greg said it really well last week when he said, God gifted you with your heart, and it's your responsibility to do the work. God can't do it for you. It's your job because it belongs to you. So I'm gonna read a really big chunk of scripture tonight from 1 Kings 19, but let me just set the scene before I do. So this is the story of Elijah, and uh, he was a prophet in Israel, and he kind of stood up against um, Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And in the two chapters before this one that I'm going to read from, he has some amazing stories, right? He, He brings a dead boy back to life. He starts and ends a drought, and then he goes up against um, 800 prophets of Baal, um, and Ashtera, and he has this massive showdown against them, and it's like it's really awesome. I love it because Elijah is actually so cheeky. So he has them have a, a, a sort of like a sacrifice off, right? So they, the prophets of Baal build their altar, and they're supposed to get Baal to call down fire and consume their sacrifice. And for days, these prophets are doing everything. They're cutting themselves and they're calling on him. And I love Elijah because he just goads them because he knows it's not going to happen because he knows Baal's not real. He knows who God is. And so he's like saying all these things to them. He's taunting them like, oh, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he just can't hear you. You're not loud enough. Maybe he's on the toilet. Yes, it's there. It's in the Bible. I'm not being rude. (laughs) And that's what he kind of does. And eventually they give up. 
And um, then Elijah comes up and he builds the altar and he does the sacrifice and then he drenches the altar in water so much that it fills up this trench that he's built around it. Now, anyone who's been camping knows wet wood does not burn. It smokes, it does not burn. And then he says a very, very simple prayer and God's fire comes down and it consumes this altar, consumes the sacrifice and every drop of water in there. And it just, God just proves his sovereignty in that moment. And the people of Israel repent and they, they kill, put to death all of the prophets of Baal. So he's just had this incredibly amazing moment. And he also then goes on to outrun a chariot of horses. Um, so he's just had victory after victory, an amazing moment after amazing moment. And then we pick it up in 1 Kings 19. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too much you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, for, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Assyria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king of Israel, and Elisha, the son of Japhat of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So I want to speak this evening about three things. Our response to pain, um, God's response to us in our pain, and our response to God. So the first thing we kind of need to understand is that the threat Elijah received was very valid. 
Jezebel was an incredibly formidable opponent. She carried out her threats. She had already murdered a lot of God's prophets. There were not very many of them left, and she was known for hunting them down. So when she said to Elijah, I'm coming for you, he knew it was a serious thing, that she would use all her resources to carry out that threat, and he was afraid. So his feeling in that moment is quite valid. (laughs) The interesting thing here, though, is that Elijah now runs, and this is the very first time in Elijah's narrative that we ever hear, we don't hear, the phrase, and the word of God came to Elijah, and he went. So up until this point, everything Elijah did and everywhere he went was preceded by the word of God telling him to do that. God doesn't even show up in this paragraph. He's not even mentioned until Elijah is all alone in the wilderness and idealizing death. We need to be so aware of our emotions and how they are impacting the way that we behave and what we do. This is called emotional wholeness. And if you want to know more about it, we do it in a whole session in Equip Training, which is coming up in October. So um, so if you want to know more, sign up. Um, But emotional wholeness is basically this. It's, It's learning to know what I'm feeling and understand why I'm feeling it, and then to take ownership of how I behave. If I allow my emotions to dictate my behavior all the time, a lot more people would be limping because I'd be kicking them in the shins. (laughs) But I know that that's not an acceptable behavior, so I don't do it, despite the fact that sometimes I really want to. (laughs) Um, I have to take ownership for my behavior and the way that I feel, and I have to submit it to what God says. So what you feel is valid, but where the choice lies in what you choose to do after you feel things. When we're going through things and we're in the middle of our fields, we need to remember not to leave God out of the situation. God wants to be there in it with us. But so often we just kind of forget that he's there, like Elijah did. And sometimes it's because we're angry at him, because we feel disappointed, because we feel like he betrayed us or that he did this to us, that he's the reason why this happened. So we leave him out. And that's the worst thing to do because pain distorts my ability to see myself, to see God, and to see my situation clearly. I can't see those things clearly. I need somebody who can. And God is the only person who can do that. Why? Because he's the God who never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he is also the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which means he knows where I've come from. He knows where I am and he knows where I'm going. So he's the best person to have in a situation and in a place where I can't see things clearly for myself. Romans 14 verse 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If God is not with me in this situation, if I've left him out of my situation, there's no faith, which means I'm in sin. And that's a really hard thing to hear. But that is the truth, and that's why we need to keep God in the picture. So we're responsible for what's going on inside of our hearts, for taking ownership of it, and uh, for the behavior that that produces. The next thing Elijah kind of does is he, he travels 
He runs away, right? And he runs far. Where he was was in the north of Israel, and he runs all the way down to the south of Judah. Um, So he gets really far away from Jezebel. And then he leaves his servant behind, and he continues into the wilderness on his own. Now, a wilderness is described as being uncultivated, uninhabited, and unfriendly for all those reasons, (laughs) because it is uncultivated and uninhabited, and it can't be cultivated. So this is the space that he finds himself in. And I think there's a lot of us tonight who are finding ourselves in inhospitable places because we've run and we've left God behind. So the fact that Elijah leaves his servant behind is really interesting because community is actually what we need in our places of pain. Because like I said, pain distorts my ability to see things clearly. It distorts my view of myself, of God, and my situation. I need community because I need people who can speak God's truth into my life when I can't see it for myself. I need them to remind me about how God is good. I need them to remind me about all the promises he has spoken over me and all the things that he has said about who I am. I need them to pray for me and to minister to me. Sometimes I need them to do physical things for me, like take the kids for a day or just take me out for coffee and be with me and allow me to feel what I'm feeling. So often as a community, we are so quick to dismiss the feelings of other people and the situations that we're in. And we need to be a better community. We need to be people who can stand with each other in love. I think sometimes we're so quick to try and fix people's problems because we're scared of how they feel. When you hear someone being angry at God, it can be a little bit like, oh, shucks, we need to get you to stop being angry at God. That's not okay. God's not scared of that. He's not scared if somebody's angry at him because he doesn't change. It doesn't change the truth of who he is or the truth of what he's doing. If he's not afraid of how somebody feels, why are you? Because it's not your job to fix them. But it is your job to be there with them and show them and remind them who God is. So Elijah's not in this desert place, in this wilderness, and he's very depressed. And he's idealizing death. He says, I'm done. I'm finished. I want to go home now. And I relate so much to this because I have had times in my life where I've honestly said to God, if this is as good as it's going to get, if this is it for the rest of my life, yeah, I'm done. Just take me home. I'd rather be in heaven. And it's a very raw and a very real place to be. And it's a very vulnerable place to be, to feel like there's nothing left. There's no hope left. And this is where Elijah kind of finds finds himself. But he says something really interesting there. He says, I am no better than my fathers. Now, this is not true. Elijah was a lot better than his fathers because he was zealous for God. We know the history of Israel. They had this terrible up and down, off and on and off and on again relationship with God, where they're zealous for him and they're following his rules and then they fall away and they serve other gods and then they decide they repent and they come back and then they fall away again and it just goes on and on. But he was zealous for God and he pursued God and he stood up against those who were against God. So he's, he is better than his fathers, but this is what I said, pain distorts my view of myself. 
But the interesting thing about this statement is that it is also a shame statement. There's shame in what he's saying. He's ashamed. And I think, honestly, I think he was ashamed because he realized what he'd done, that he'd run away from God, not just from Jezebel, that he'd left God out of the situation, now he finds himself in this mess. So what is shame? Shame is the lie that I believe about myself. So very often we think shame has to do with something that I've done, right? And there is a link, but here's the thing. I do a lot of very stupid, sinful things every day, and I don't feel deep-centered shame about them. So I might gossip about someone. It's not good. God's convicting me, but it happens because I'm not perfect, um, but I need to be. Um, I might not work as hard as I should. I might make excuses. I might even tell white lies or whatever it is. But I don't always feel a deep sense of shame about those things. Why? Because not all those things speak to my identity. They're not about who I am. So where shame lies is where it's telling you something about who you are, where the thing that you've done is tied to your own identity. So I'll give you an example. And say, for example, you're stuck in the repetitive sin of watching pornography. Very real thing, a lot of people struggle with it. But what's the narrative that happens inside? Whenever you kind of repeat the sin, you've done it again, and it becomes, oh, I can't believe I just did that. How stupid can I be? Oh, God, forgive me, but oh, I asked you for your forgiveness last week. You must be so done with me. I'm sure I can't ask you for forgiveness again. I'm so useless. I'm so unworthy. I'm so unlovable. Whatever the thing is, those are the things and the lies that, that it speaks over us. It tells us, like what Greg said, that I'm not enough. So there are two ingredients to the remedy of shame. And the first one is that I need to replace those lies with God's truth. Where the shame is telling me that I am not worthy, I need to remind myself that God says I am. Not because of anything I've done, because I can't do enough to be worthy. My sin is always going to be too great and my ability to be perfect too small. But God says I'm worthy because I accepted Christ's gift of life when he died on the cross. And that is what makes me worthy. So it doesn't matter what I do or what I don't do. God says I am worthy, end of story. God says I am loved. He loved me so much that even when he was deciding about making planet Earth and he knew that we were going to mess it up, he still said, I still want to do this. So let's have a redemption plan in place. He predestined you to be part of his family before he even started creation. That is how much he wants you. That is how much he loves you. So when you're feeling like you're unlovable, remind yourself what God did for you. So we have to replace the lies with truth. And the second um, ingredient in the remedy is confession. Repentance and confession. Now, repentance, remember, is about falling out of agreement with the lies that I believe. So we do need to repent, regardless of why I believe the lies. If somebody taught me from a small child that I'm a nuisance and I'm unlovable, it's not my fault, but I still have to repent, because repent means 
I fall out of agreement with you. I no longer, dis- I am no longer am agreeing with this thing. Then it's confession, and we hate confession. And the reason we do is because confession is very exposing. We think of it as exposure. It's not just about vulnerability. It's about being exposed, exposing the scariest and worst parts that I believe about myself. There's a lot of fear wrapped up in confession because what if the person I tell agrees with me about how I see myself? What if they tell me you're right about everything you think? What if they can't hold what I tell them and they judge me for it? So this is why Satan wants you to think that way because it keeps you bound in shame. So every time you wanna step out for God, every time you wanna grow in your relationship with God, what's he gonna do? He's gonna blackmail you with that thing you're ashamed of. You can't step out because everybody's gonna know what you did, what you do, who you really are. And those are lies. Again, those are lies. Satan wants to keep you bound because then you're weak and you're not doing all the things that God's called you to do. And this is why confession is so incredibly powerful because it breaks the bond of of shame on our lives. Because if people know about it, you can't blackmail me with it. It's there, it's known. And guess what? I was loved and accepted anyway. Now there is wisdom in choosing who you confess to. The Bible says confess one to another, not on a podium to the world. If you feel called, do it. Really, genuinely, the wisdom is choose somebody who is mature in the faith, who's strong in the faith, and can hold what you're saying. Not everybody is mature enough, and that's okay. One day they will be, and so will you. But for now, find someone that you can trust and confess to them. James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another, And pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power. It is powerful and effective. And this is why God does this, because when we come together and we confess, we pray for each other. And that allows God to move and to come and to break those things over our lives. So we need to be pushing into God, because God is the one who never changes. And we need to be pushing into community because they're the ones who can minister to us, can speak God's truth to us, and can keep us accountable in our lives. And we need to be dealing with our stuff, with our shame, owning our hearts, and taking responsibility. So God's response to us in our pain. So Elijah's in the desert, remember, in the wilderness, and he's idealizing death, he wants to die, he's done. And I love this because God's response to Elijah is so practical. He doesn't berate Elijah for running away. He doesn't tell him off. He doesn't say, I'm disappointed in you. I can't believe you left me behind. Um, He doesn't tell him, why were you afraid? Like, what's wrong with you? Instead, God ministers to him. So often we think that God is judging us. We think he's disappointed in us. And we tend to project that onto him. And we tell him how he feels about us. 
Somebody did this to me a few weeks ago, and it made me quite upset. And I remember saying to them, you don't get to tell me how I feel. You do not know me well enough, and you're getting it wrong. And yet, we kind of have the audacity to do the same to God. And we tell him how he feels about us. How about we just be quiet and listen and let God tell us how he feels about us? So God ministers to him in, in this place and he attends to Elijah's physical needs. See, our emotional health and our physical health are actually linked. And science has shown us this. So for example, there's something called broken heart syndrome. And I've seen it in my family when my sister passed away. My mom developed broken heart syndrome. And what it is is that it's a temporary arrhythmia that your heart develops um, in response to extreme stressful emotional situations. And that can be other things. It doesn't have to be grief, but very often that's why it's called broken heart syndrome. It's connected to grief. So that's a situation where emotional health impacted physical health. But statistics also show that people who have been diagnosed with heart conditions, like arrhythmias first, often go on to develop depression and anxiety. And this one I know for myself, because I got diagnosed with a heart arrhythmia in 2018. And I spent that entire year being anxious and depressed because my heart ruled my life. Every little thing it did, the moment it jumped above a certain number, I had to stop wearing an Apple Watch because I got obsessed with my heart rate because I was so scared of winding up in the ICU again. And that's a sign of how our physical health impacts our mental health. So we really need to watch both those things. Whether you're trying to deal with a physical health issue, you need to keep your mental health in mind as well. And if you're dealing with a mental health issue, you need to keep your physical health in mind as well because both actually interplay. They affect each other. And if you're looking after the one, you're going to help the other one and vice versa. There's an interesting um, thing I do want to share with uh, regards to PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder shows it really well. So on MRI scans, it actually physically changes your brain. So for example, the hippocampus shrinks, and that is the center for emotion and memory. So that part of your brain shrinks, which is why PTSD sufferers struggle with their emotions and with memories. The uh, prefrontal anterior cingulate function decreases. And this is interesting because it's the center for complex functions like planning and self-development. So their ability to plan and develop themselves decreases. God made us incredibly when he created us. The thing that I take away from this is that it's important that we do what we need to do because God gifted us with our hearts and with our bodies and you are responsible for them. So do what you need to do. Do what you can do. So in this moment, God meets Elijah's physical needs because he understands that until Elijah is physically capable, he won't be able to deal with Elijah's emotional state. But he does, he ministers to Elijah and it says that the meal that he, the last meal he gave him, 
I like to think the cake was cheesecake, but that's my preference. Um, <laughs> but I know that's not the kind of cake they meant, but it's fine. I still like the idea of an angel icing it, putting sprinkles on top. Um, but it says that that meal sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights. When we allow God to minister to us in our place of pain, it sustains us. It allows us to do what we need to do so we can get to where God needs us to be. So our response to God. So Elijah has this meal and he travels to Mount Sinai, which is also Mount Horeb, same place, which is where God gave the Ten Commandments to his people, not once, but twice. And uh, when he arrives there, God asks him a question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that can be said two ways, right? What are you doing here? And what are you doing here? And so often when we respond to our pain with our God, we end up in places we shouldn't be, doing things we shouldn't be doing. I love Elijah's response because, again, he's kind of dramatic. <laughs> and because also I find it quite relatable. So he talks about, first of all, how he has been zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And don't we tend to do this? When we find ourselves in difficult situations, we kind of talk about everything we've done how much we've done, how much work we put in. And we feel like we don't deserve to be in this situation because we did so much. But Lord, I spent every day in your word and I was praying to you and I was listening to worship music. I haven't missed a single worship night this year. I've been to every church service and yet here we are. Then Elijah starts to blame everybody else, the Israelites. Look at what they've done. They've torn down all your altars. They're chasing down your prophets. They've put us to death. Now they're after me. Aren't we like that as well? Well, just look at the government. If they'd stop being so corrupt and stop using all our money incorrectly, then I wouldn't be in this situation. If ESCOM would stop giving out bonuses instead of putting them into the business, blah, 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 haven't we heard this all before? Don't we say it all? Was it just me? <laughs> then Elijah says something very interesting that's not true, because so far everything he said is true. He did all those things for God. He was very zealous for God. And he was right, the Israelites were tearing down God's altars and putting to death his prophets, God's prophets. But then he says, I and only I am left. That's not true. See, if you go back and you read the previous two chapters, Elijah actually meets a man who works in the palace, right, of Jezebel's palace. And he manages to rescue 100 prophets and hide them away. So we know, and Elijah should know, that there are at least 101 other people out there. It's not just him. But this is what pain does. It distorts my ability to see things clearly. So often in our pain, we feel picked on. We feel like we don't deserve to be where we are. I love God's response in this moment because he could have agreed with Elijah. Yes, you're so right. My son, you've done so much for me. I'm so grateful that you said yes. Thank you so much for the sacrifices you've made. The, the Israelites, you're right. I mean, you're, you're right. They're such a mess. You're mad. I'm mad. It's been centuries of this. Generation after generation. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't correct Elijah either. He doesn't say, listen, buddy, check your facts. You are not the only prophet left. 
there are others out there. You're not the only one. Check your attitude and just like, fix your life. Doesn't do that to him. But what God does do is he gives him a demonstration. And the demonstration is that wind that tears pieces off the mountain, but God's not in the wind. And then it's the earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And it's the fire. And that's significant because in the chapter before, God used fire to show his sovereignty to his people. But God's not in this fire. Where is he? He's in the sound of a whisper. Do you know what the sound of a whisper is? It's a little creepy, really. <laughs> that is the sound of a whisper. How can you hear something like that if all you're doing is talking about everything you've done and everything that's wrong, and you're not listening? The truth is, and I'm going to say this very bluntly, sometimes we need to shut up. We need to stop speaking so that God can talk to us. We need to be still and know that He is God. So Elijah hears the sound of a whisper and he comes to the cave and God asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Sometimes we're so busy looking for God in the big demonstrations. We want Jesus to come riding on his white steed with his cloak dripped in blood and his double-edged sword. We want him to smite all our enemies and just set everything right. And we get so caught up in waiting for those things that we don't hear and listen for what God is actually saying to us. And we don't take ownership for the fact that maybe I am where I am because I left God out of the equation in the first place. God's response to Elijah, because Elijah gives the same answer again, right? Which I, the first time I read through this in prep, I actually laughed. Because <laughs> I was like, could you not see that that was a trap? <laughs> God was asking you the same question, which should have kind of made you think that maybe your response the first time was not quite the right response. But God lets Elijah respond the way he does, and he does. And then God doesn't, again, he doesn't address anything that Elijah says. But what he does do is he answers his own question. What he does is he gives Elijah the thing he should be doing and the place he should have been doing it in. He redirects him back to where he should have been. There's some few interesting things to note here. So the, the first thing is that God tells him to get back on the road to the wilderness of Damascus. So God was directing him from one wilderness to another. Jesus never said this was gonna be easy. Sometimes we are in wildernesses, but we're meant to be there. Wildernesses do not always mean I messed up. But the difference is, is that God was going to give him a task to anoint three other people that were going to help him solve this little situation that they were having with the prophets of Baal and with Jezebel and Ahab, the rebellious king and queen. He was going to anoint three people. And the Bible tells us, in the verse after what I read, that Whoever the first king, the king of Syria, didn't kill, the second one, the king of Israel, would get them. And whoever slipped through his nets, Elisha, the new prophet, was going to get. So God had this plan in motion already. This is what Elijah was supposed to do before he ran. 
And I find it interesting because what God was doing was plugging him back into community. He was assembling his own little Avenger team. They were going to go and do what God had told them to do. So even though he was meant to be in a wilderness, he was not going to be on his own. God wasn't taken by surprise by the situation that Elijah found him into, found himself in. And God is not surprised by the situation that you find yourself in. He's never taken by surprise. And again, this is why I have to push into him, because he's the one who knows he is the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And some of the interesting things to note here is um, when God gave Elijah the instruction, before he gave the demonstration, he said, come out onto the mountain. And Elijah doesn't. But when he hears the slow, the, the low, <laughs> the sound of the whisper, um, he comes to the entrance of the cave, so he still doesn't leave the cave. And this speaks to me about obedience. We need to recognize that we are responsible for obeying what God says. See, God can come in and he can, when we obey him, he takes us to new places. We don't stay in wildernesses. We're not, we're not meant to stay in wildernesses. God wants to take us to green pastures. He wants to take us to places of victory. He wants his kingdom established on this earth. But if I'm not going to be obedient, I might miss that. I might not see all of it. And it's interesting because scholars note that Elijah didn't anoint the two kings that God told him to anoint. There's no mention of it. In fact, Elisha, his his, the one that comes up after him, um, <laughs> English fail, successor, thank you, Jess, um, is the one who anoints the, the new king of Israel. And there's no mention of him actually anointing Elisha. And it makes me wonder what could have happened if he had. Some of us are finding ourselves in that situation, in that wilderness, where we are doing things we shouldn't be doing, and we're finding ourselves in places that we shouldn't be in. And tonight we need to learn, we need to understand that it's my responsibility. My heart is my responsibility. My obedience is my responsibility. So as we kind of land for tonight, there's two people I'd want to pray for. And the first is if you have recognized that maybe you're in a wilderness tonight. Maybe you found yourself in an inhospitable place that you shouldn't be in, doing things that you shouldn't be doing, and you've kind of drifted away from what God has done and you've left him out of the equation. Tonight, God wants to come and he wants to minister to you. And he wants to remind you of where you're meant to be and who you are meant to be. So can we just stand together? If that's you tonight and you're feeling like you've gone off path and you wanna come back and you just wanna remind yourself about what God has said to you, about who you are and go back to the road of Damascus. With our eyes closed, won't you just raise your hands up to God? Look God, I just wanna pray for every single one of your children with their hands raised right now. I wanna thank you, Lord God, that you are a good, good Father, that you love us and that your heart for us is to see us living in victory. 
see us living free from the things that bind us and keep us from doing what you have called us to do, from being who you have called us and created us to be. Father, won't you come right now and minister to the hearts of every single person with their hands raised? Just come and wash over them, Father. Wash away all those regrets, all that sense of shame, all that disappointment, Lord God. Come and fill them once again, Holy Spirit. Be close to them in this moment. Remind them of how much you love them, how much you want them, and how you're waiting for them. Just come, Holy Spirit, and minister to each and every one of them. Even as they leave this place tonight, Lord God, continue to minister to them in the week. Show them, Lord God, where they need to be. We worship you, Lord God, and we thank you that you are a good Father, that we can trust you, Lord. Even when we feel like we can't, we know you can, we can, because we know what your word says.